Hi, this is Gary Puckett, Once Upon a Time of Gary Puckett and the Union Gap, and you are listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is George Bonnell, an original member of the Strawberry Alarm Clock, another of the great 60s bands. They hit the big time with their 1967 number one hit song, Incense and Peppermints. Who can forget that song? That song was originally the B-side of something called the Birdman of Alcatraz, which I love that name. But as sometimes happens, a radio disc jockey turned it over and started playing the B-side, and the rest is history. If you can believe it, five of the guys from the first Strawberry Alarm Clock album are still in the current band. That's got to be a record. And in the middle of this episode, we are going to do what I love to do, which is called the Song Fest, where we're going to play a handful of songs that George has picked out, and we're going to talk about them, and you'll get the backstories, and nobody else does this in podcasts. And as I like to do with every episode, I always feature one of my songs in each episode underneath the introduction and at the end. And I always try to make it relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, I have chosen my song called Right Now from the album Miller Rocks. Why did I choose it? Well, the Strawberry Alarm Clock with a quintessential 60s band and Right Now is a quintessential type 60s rock song. And how many times do you hear the word quintessential in two sentences in a row? So I thought that this fit. So George Bunnell, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Hey, thanks. That's great, Robert. You know, the funny thing with the word quintessential, we're friends with Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins. He told our keyboard player, Mark Weitz, because he had Mark Weitz join him on a tour as the keyboard player. And he told Mark that he thought that the Strawberry Alarm Clock was the quintessential psychedelic 60s rock band. Those were his words. Well, he's right about that. I mean, you guys hit the whole thing right at the perfect time. The name was great. The song was great. I mean, we're going to talk about all of this, but I'm looking, you know, most people, they're only going to be able to hear us. They can't see us, but you're a bass player like I am. And I see all these bases that you've got lined up to the side of you. Now, tell me what your favorite bass is here. It's my 62P bass right here. I love this little guy. This is a Fender Precision bass. Yeah. Okay, this is what started it all, okay? The guys at Motown, you know, Jim Jamerson, you know, he had a P bass and that became the sound of Motown. And guys like you that were fortunate enough to get one of these basses when they were first made, I mean, it's just got a sound that never has been replicated. Am I right? Yeah, they're, oh, it's real. It's got a warmth to it and a punch and it's got an edge to it, you know. 
All right. So let's talk about the strawberry alarm clock. I mean, that's your band. That was the era. This is the mid 60s. The psychedelic is coming everywhere. Okay. We, we all got our Paisleys and we've got our bell bottoms and we got all the different colors of the rainbow and the Beatles. You're not that old, are you? Well, I am old enough to remember all of this stuff. Listen, I had a band <laughs> back in my high school years. It's called the Buccaneers. And we played everything that was on the radio. And of course, the Beatles were leading the, the pack in all of this. And the Stones came right behind. And Tommy James, you know, did his whole psychedelic thing. So you did this great song, Incense and Peppermints. It became a number one song. Tell us the derivation of this whole thing. How did it come about? Okay, so Incense and Peppermints was an instrumental without the title Incense and Peppermints. It was actually called The Happy Whistler. So it started out as an instrumental, as is the what we hear today on the final. That was what was done? That was the actual record. It was already done in the can. And and so they they the producer said his his songwriting guy that worked for him had a title called Incense and Peppermints, and he would like to have him try writing, you know, a body of lyrics to the song. So they he did. He came back. They did it. They recorded it in the studio. And that was the end of that. The, the song came out and it was a massive hit. You know, it's remarkable because, I mean, it had a very cool musical background to it. Okay. That Farfisa organ, the whole thing, you know, that had that sound of that era. But I can't even imagine what it was like as an instrumental only. Did you ever put it out as an instrumental or only with the vocal in there? Uh, no, no. They finished it before they released it. I'm just saying, you know, sometimes afterwards they come back out with the original version, you know, uh, if if it's a, a, a bootleg type of an album and they tell you, OK, this was the original and then here's the next version that came out. That would almost be very interesting. All right. It comes out. Incense and Peppermints, it captures the moment with that title, with the song, with everything. Tell us how it exploded. Well, Johnny Fairchild in Santa Barbara was a DJ friend of the band, because the band used to play gigs at, at a pizzeria in Santa Barbara, and, and everybody was friends with, and that was, KIST Radio was like the station in Santa Barbara. And I, I think maybe it was Bill Holmes, the manager, who who was friends with Johnny Fairchild. But anyway, Johnny Fairchild started to play the, they gave him the single, but they gave him Birdman of Alcatraz as the A side and Incense and Peppermints as the B side. I got to stop you there. Who thought that Birdman of Alcatraz was going to be the best side to be the A side? Whose idea was that? I think it was, I think it was the manager. Bill Holmes. Yeah. And he had a lot of bad ideas. But anyway, that was <laughs> that was a, one of his classic goofah things. About a bad idea. All right. You know what? I want to play a little bit of Birdman of Alcatraz right now so people can hear what we're talking about. Every time the Birdman comes, he flies overneath the 
Just talk a little bit about that song and why anybody thought that that was going to be the big hit. Well, Mark Weitz wrote it and sang it, and and he's the keyboard player. And he was kind of emulating uh, Sky Saxon of the Seeds and kind of doing that kind of a a groove to it and, and that kind of thing. But it was more or less kind of a mockery in a way it was because it, the lyrics were silly and it was, it was a novelty song. Right. And that was the brain, you know thought that you know novelty songs if all else fails do a novelty song you know that'll get you somewhere you know they were all over the place at the time yes you're right there were some novelty songs and some of them did really well okay yeah but you know it's like you had this great song as the b-side that was right at the moment and somebody else said no 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 we're going to go with birdman of alcatraz i know it's ridiculous <laughs> it is it's very funny but it was Johnny Fairchild, the disc jockey, that said, no, no, no. It's the A-side should be Incense and Peppermints. And he just started to play the hell out of it. You know, it's funny. But on this podcast, I've now heard this story at least three, four, five times with acts from the 60s where the A-side was something that you would never listen to. And some random disc jockey somewhere just figured out on their own that they were going to flip it around and play the B-side as the side, and it became a big hit. I mean, this wasn't the only time it happened. That's my point. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Disc jockeys, have, you know, they, they know what's going on. They know what their people like, you know, and don't like. But they also had power back then. You know, now everything is so regimented. You know, it's it's so set that they have to play a certain playlist. And back then, it was more freeform that disc jockeys had the, the ability to kind of play what they wanted to play. Yeah. Anyway, it worked out. This became a big, massive hit. What happened to you after that hit? It's now number one in the United States. I mean, what a remarkable thing to have a number one record. What'd you do after that? Well, right at that moment, Mike Love had come into our recording session that we were doing. And he walks, I, I happen to have been in the little waiting room uh, of the recording session, restringing a guitar. Uh, for our guitar player Ed King and so I was alone and Mike Love walked in and he had a clipboard and at first he goes hi I'm Mike Love and I went duh and it's like everybody knows who he, he is you know and he was as a matter of fact in 1967 he couldn't have been more famous probably you know and so he says we want you we really like your band and we want you to go on tour with us and the Buffalo Springfield and we want you to do two tours we want you to do our annual Thanksgiving tour in November 67 and our annual Easter tour in, in April of 68. And I'm like, wow. And then I, I'm waiting for the red light to go off so I can get to the band, you know, and get him in there. And it, and it did. And then we all, we, I brought him in there and there, and then the band's like, whoa. And then he sat down with the tour roster he, on his clipboard. He had the full deal, both tours. And it we just like, where do we sign? You know, so that was that was a big deal. All right, tell me about this. Okay, how did he pick you? I don't mean you, but the person, but I mean your band. 
he said that they all, everybody in the Beach Boys loved our album and our harmonies. And they thought we would be a really good, they were trying to do tours with groups that were diverse, you know, from what they were. And so they thought that we were the perfect tie-in between Buffalo Springfield and the Beach Boys, you know, the psychedelic vocal band. So all three bands were harmony bands. Right. And, you know, people don't think of Buffalo Springfield as a harmony, but they totally were a harmony band. Oh, absolutely. I just had Richie Fure on the podcast from Buffalo Springfield. And yes, they were definitely a harmony band. But I mean, the combination of Strawberry Alarm Clock Buffalo Springfield and the Beach Boys. I mean, that's not the kind of combo that you would just think of off the top. But as you just said, it's almost emblematic of what was done back in the day because promoters would put these disparate groups together on the bill and it worked. You don't see that anymore, do you? No, they try to put like kinds together nowadays. Like we we played with Otis Redding and, (laughs) you know... Those are weird deals, you know, you know, where the audience are kind of looking at us like, what are these guys doing here? You know, but, you know, that was the way it kind of went. I think that that was the better way of doing it. I've told this story before on the podcast several times. I lived in New York City and I went to see The Who play at the Fillmore East and the opening act was Miles Davis. Okay. Oh, that's great. But the combination of the two was exactly as we're discussing two different acts, two different audiences, two different everything, but it worked because it exposed each to the other's audience. Okay. So it maximized the impact. The other thing with the Beach Boy tour was that we were all from LA and, you know, and and then when we came off the tour, we all hung out and went to lunch or whatever. We knew each other, you know, so it was pretty cool, you know, so it was kind of like homeboys, you know, (laughs) (laughs) well listen you can't do better than being on tour with the beach boys that must have been amazing huh yeah you know because uh the beatles weren't touring at that time this was 1967 the end of 67 and uh the stones i don't i don't i don't think they were even touring at the moment and it was you know their satanical majesty's request time for them so that everybody was kind of like in the studio kind of you know making psychedelic music and you know Sergeant Pepper and everything, and they, and they were kind of done with the touring live thing, and so the Beach Boys were like the the last huge band out there touring, and they they never stopped. But <laughs> just out of curiosity, was Brian Wilson in the band at that time? No, he was already in his sandbox. I think right. <laughs> <laughs> the sandbox. Yeah, I, well, they told us you know that he had you know fear of flying and that he had a uh, ear problem and and uh there there were some issues and now we now everybody knows what exactly he had some real issues is right but yeah look the guy was a genius if it wasn't for him there wouldn't be a beach boys totally i mean he's unbelievable his the all the people the, we're friends with all of his family and everything too isn't that great Hi, everybody. This is your host, Robert Miller. I'm pleased to tell you that I've got a new album called Bobby M. and the Paisley Parade. 
It features 10 new songs, plus guest appearances by John Helliwell of Supertramp, Tony Carey of Rainbow, and international sitar sensation Deobrat Mishra. The album has a definite 60s vibe, and the theme of the record is all about relationships and love. It may just be my best album ever. The reviewers agree. Indie Shark calls it Album of the Year. Big Celebrity Buzz says it's one of the great rock sets of the year. And Pop Icon calls it an adventure that keeps us on the edge of our seats. How about that? And for me, the icing on the cake is the praise that the album has received from world-class musicians like Steve Hackett of Genesis, Gary Puckett of The Union Gap, Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul and Mary, Jim McCarty of The Yardbirds, and David Liebert of The Happenings. I'm going to release the 10 songs on the album in a novel way in five special episodes of this podcast featuring two songs in each one. So be on the lookout for these special episodes of Bobby M. and the Paisley Parade. And if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to this podcast and please sign up for our weekly emails previewing each episode and much more. The links are all in the show notes. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. Okay, so you, you do the tour with the Beach Boys and with Buffalo Springfield. It's now 1968, and uh, your your hit has, got, as I said, gone to number one. What happens after that? Well, the record company started to get involved. We, we did our second. Well, okay, so they wanted a follow-up to Incense and Peppermints. That's what happened after. Right. And that's the song called Tomorrow. But the, here's another one of that manager's missteps <laughs> besides the Birdman of Alcatraz. This was his number two thing. <laughs> so he decided that there's a whole nother long story. But anyway, the, the writers for Incense and Peppermints ended up only being the lyricists. They got the music and lyric credit, whereas the music was already recorded and done. And the, Mark Weitz and Ed King wrote the music. They didn't get credit. So, and that was also because of that manager. He wanted his name on it. The producer said, no, 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 no. Anyway, so what ends up happening is he wants to make up for, for them not getting it on the single. So he wants them to write, he wants Ed and Mark to write the neck, the follow-up. Well, it wasn't on the, the first album still had songs that that were going to get pulled off of it for singles, like Birds in My Tree and a couple other things. Paxton's Backstreet Carnival, and they, and they had those songs on singles, ready to go, kind of, 
but they decided to put tomorrow go back in the studio record tomorrow and then release it in a rush without even the second album being ready to back it up the second album was called wake up it's tomorrow and so that was the album for that single which is how always how it went but they could have been in the meantime taking singles off the first album but they rushed dropped the first album it was number 11 in the country at the time the first album and 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 incense was just coming down off of number one and and then they released tomorrow and tomorrow riding on the coattails of incense managed to get to number 23 in the country but the band wasn't exactly happy with the way the recording it was kind of rushed so when we did the album the single i mean the song tomorrow got a new bass part a new uh lead guitar part and some harmonies got enriched and so the the album cut is 10 times better than the single was and because of the rush you know to get it out they screwed the whole thing up and then that album didn't sell <laughs> yeah exactly you know i was almost expecting you to say that they wanted you know incense and peppermints too okay number two because you know it come up with some some you know combination of words that sounds exactly like incense and peppermints come up with the same kind of you know feel on the song the same farfisa organ because that was an era when they wanted to have this the follow-up basically replicate what the original was yeah so you must have gotten pressure to you know let's hear another one that's just like this yeah the funny thing is that Russ Regan from Uni Records, who who we love, he he liked Birds in My Tree as a follow-up. Because it sounded like it had the same kind of instrumentation. It had the same sound to it. It was kind of more of a, a mellow song, but it starts off really bold and in E minor and everything that, you know. So that's a good one. But they didn't um, get behind it. They made that the flip side of Tomorrow. And it stayed that way. Exactly. Nobody flipped that one over, unfortunately. Yeah. This is this is a common complaint from back in that day that, that record companies chased material okay and you were lucky in a sense that you had that big number one because if you didn't have the number one they would have thrown that first album against the wall and if nothing stuck that would have been the end of it and they would have dropped you from the label but you know you got fortunate and uh good for you that it all worked out and you had that big big hit yeah it was actually kind of a miracle it took a long time that record took forever to climb the charts it only stayed at the number one for a week or something, but it was it was on the charts for quite a long time first. But think about it. You recorded this song, you said 1967, I believe, and you're still out there playing it today, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, think about the legs that that song has had. Yeah, we just did it at the Whiskey A Go-Go on Friday, and it was fun. People just go nuts, and, and the audience is young. 
you know, like at the Whiskey Go Go, it is. There's clubs that will sometimes go play, and and the and it's like playing at an old age home. They're they're our age, <laughs> but 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 at the Whiskey Go Go, it's really fun. We're all smiles because the audience are all really you know young, cute girls, and the whole bit. You know, I was talking, I had John Lodge from the Moody Blues on the podcast, and he made the comment, I've mentioned this a couple of times, that uh, when he was 19 years old, his friends were asking, well, what are you going to do when you're 21? You know, because they never expected that this stuff was going to last. And he said at the time, they were hoping they'd get 10, maybe 20 years of, of you know, people actually remembering the music. And here he is 50 years later, and people are still you know, loving the music. And you're in the same position. All those great hits from the 60s, they've had life and legs that I'm sure you never expected. Right. As a matter of fact, that's the way it is with the young the, the young audience that comes and sees us. They know the lyrics to the back songs, to the album cuts, you know, that, you know, that that weren't singles. So they're sitting there singing the lyrics with us which that didn't even happen back in the 60s. Now it's it's really pretty cool. Yeah, I'm sure you guys probably have trouble remembering the lyrics to some of Well, our drummer does. <laughs> <laughs> Randy Seal is the lead singer, and he's like, you know, every once in a while he stumbles on a lyric, but we get them. We know what they are mostly. Yeah, you have to have some kind of a teleprompter or something for the lyrics. Yeah. I'm always amazed at some of the great artists from that era, you know, like the Stones and McCartney. I mean, they, and they remember everything, okay? How do they do it? It's quite yeah. remarkable. All right, let's play a couple of other songs. We've played several of the songs already that you've just mentioned, but you had this song called Pretty Song from Psych Out. Tell us about that one. Oh, man, I loved that song. I still do. And, and that one there, Dick Clark uh, put us in a, in a movie called Psych Out. And he asked, he was using uh, Paul Simon's The Sounds of the Sound of Silence or Sounds of Silence and as the working theme song for the movie because it was about a deaf girl and stuff. And so he asked us, he says, can you write something like that? Well, Ed King and Lee Freeman, you know, they lived together at the time. So they went home and they, they came back with Pretty Song from Psych Out. And it didn't have a title. I think it was just called Pretty Song, but they, Dick Clark called it Pretty Song from Psych Out. But um, the band loved it. And we went in and did it. And Dick Clark just flipped out. He thought it was the most beautiful song ever. And um that and Birds in My Tree were his favorite songs of ours. But he said, that's it. That's that's the theme of the movie. So it became the theme. Isn't that great? I love when you, you hear stories about the names of songs like this. In fact, you mentioned you, you toured with Buffalo Springfield. And, you know, their gigantic hit for what it's worth was a throwaway line by Steve Stills 
when they were at an audition and he said, well, I got one more song for what it's worth. That was not supposed to be the title of the song. It oh. was just like he was throwing it out saying, oh, I got one more song. So you got the same thing with Pretty Song from Psycho. All right, we're going to listen to one more. You do this version of Good Morning Starshine, which of course became a big, big hit for, I think it was Oliver. And your recording is pretty cool. So tell us about that. I had already left the band because we found out that this manager that kept making mistakes was also a crook. <laughs> so <laughs> and, and so you got he, the one-two punch from him. Yeah, huh? yeah, yeah. And so the drummer and I quit. Randy Seal and I quit. And um, that was after the third album we quit. And then the fourth album is where Good Morning Starshine is. And at the time, everybody was getting hits by using songs out of hair, the play, musical. And um, there, there were a whole bunch of hits that came out of it. And um, one of my favorites is Easy to Be Hard by Three Dog Night. Yep. And, you know, I never even, for the life of me, I, I can't remember that that was from hair. But I know now, because <laughs> I had to play the song with somebody just recently. And, I, and then they said, yeah, it was in hair. And I went, what? Anyway. So Good Morning Starshine was that it was that kind of an idea. Everybody's having a hit, you know, like the, the cow sills and whatnot. And so they decided, okay, let's uh let's do Good Morning Starshine. Now I had already left the band, so I wasn't part of it, but they brought it to me and they played me the album because we were all friends still. They, we, I didn't quit because I didn't like the band. I quit because the manager was crooked. There's a whole reason, there's a side story there, but it, as to how the quitting happened. But but anyway, they brought me that album. And I thought that their version of Good Morning Starshine was fantastic. And so then the same time that they released it, Oliver released his, or his record company did. And I they must have known that the Strawberry Alarm Clock's album was being called Good Morning Starshine and that they were doing a whole push with it because they jumped all over the publicity for Oliver. And there was nothing from the alarm clock. They were letting it ride, you know, like on the previous fame, you know, by the name of the band. That didn't work. They got killed. The, I think I think the Strawberry Alarm Clock version of Good Morning Starshine made it to number 87 on Billboard, where I think Oliver hit probably number one or he was like song of the year or something yeah, he was in the top 10 it was top 10 yeah well they beat you to the punch but you, you can't take any of the blame for that because you were out of the group at that time yeah but i really liked their version of it but now see i tried to get the band to do it now but they don't want to do it you know so i said Let's memories is that the problem uh no they well the keyboard player loved oliver's version Mark White, he loves Oliver's version, and he thinks that's what happened, that, that his version was better. But I didn't think of it that way at the time. And then Randy, the drummer who would be singing it, 
he doesn't like singing glibby glop newbie. So, and which I totally get it. You know, it's like, I don't want to do it either. I'm not going to do that. You're right. One of the great lyrics of all time, glibby yeah. glop newbie. <laughs> well, you know what? I don't think you got any competition from Oliver these days. I haven't heard of the guy in 50 years. No, so no. If you do decide to play it, you'll be the only guys playing it, I assure you. Yeah. I, I think that the band is kind of happy that they're not stuck having to play it. Nobody, it doesn't get requested, you know, because that album didn't, it didn't chart. Didn't go anywhere. I hear you. Well, listen, we have been speaking here with George Bunnell of the Strawberry Alarm Clock that had this gigantic hit with incense and peppermints. And then you went on tour with the Beach Boys. I can't even begin to imagine how cool that must have been. It just sounds like a great time back then, you know, in that whole psychedelic era. I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast, George. It's been so much fun. Oh, thanks, Robert. That was great. I love it. Bass player to bass player. <laughs> That's right. Two bass players just chatting here. Now we're going to listen to that song that started off the episode. It's my song called Right Now. And uh, I want to thank you all for listening. And we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at the pgsstore.com. Well, I just didn't think that we shared all these tears. Yes, I just didn't think that we'd have all these fears. But I turned it to go because it's taking us years right now. I wanted a life with you. I thought that you wanted to I hope that you'll see it through right now Don't be anywhere right now Right now